I'll invite you to look with me in the book of Genesis. I'm going to read the last or some of the last verses of this chapter. Before I do that, uh, I want to say just a couple brief things. Um, One, uh, Cindy Hinton sent a message to Chad, our other pastor who's been hunting in Mississippi and doing other things. She wanted to express her thanks to you as the congregation for how you've loved her, how you've texted her, how the flowers that we sent. She wants to express her appreciation for you and your love for her as she's experienced the recent passing of her mother. And so she wasn't able to be here today, but she wanted me to say something to you. So thank you for how you have loved Cindy. It's it's meant the world to her as her mom has recently gone on to glory. That second thing is, just wanted to briefly remind you, um, I've got my doctor's appointment this Thursday. Don't forget about this, please. Don't make me get on my knees and beg you. Please pray for me. Uh, I start bright and early Thursday morning at 7.15 at Duke. Uh, This is my next round of scans, my tests and everything. So uh, Thursday is day 90. So I have these every 90 days. So if you would like to pray for enduring grace, enabling grace, I would appreciate that uh, because I get real nervous about this stuff. So if you would pray for me, I would appreciate it. That's Thursday morning. Thank you. All right. Last thing before we read. Remember that this year we're thinking about the whole Bible, the story of the Bible. So we're going through the story of Scripture. And most of us have been taught that the Bible is a two-part story, that there's, uh, you know, sin and Jesus. But when you read the Bible, it's actually a four-part story. And to the extent that we don't line up with that four-part story, our understanding of Christianity is going to be a little bit warped. The four-part story is this, creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. The whole Bible fits together. There's not a gigantic difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is one comprehensive story that all fits together so that you can't understand Revelation unless you really understand Genesis because the way that God set up the world is the way things are going to be. Even though we rebelled against God, even that couldn't stop his plan to spread his glory throughout the whole earth. He has been unfolding this plan since Genesis 1. So please don't forget the four-part story. It's vitally important if you want to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And also remember, we got these five statements that go with the four-part story. I'll go over them just briefly. Statement number one, God has always had a people. He's always building his church. The church did not start in the book of Acts. God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. Two, evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Three, grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. Vitally important. From Genesis to the end, God is a God of grace. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something in his life and death and resurrection. His death didn't make you savable. His death didn't make salvation possible. He is a literal savior who literally died to save his people from their sins. That's why he's named Jesus. 
You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And fifth, everything's moving toward Jesus. Everything in your life, everything in the history of the world, everything in the scripture, everything is moving toward Jesus. So if you remember those five things over this year, if you can remember those five and remember the four-part story, it's the lens through which we're going through the scriptures together. So listen to this. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 50. This is at the end of Joseph's life. And if you don't know who Joseph is, that's okay. We're going to look at it together. Genesis 15, excuse me, Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21. Listen to this. This is God's word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. It's true. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would act on us as we seek to understand this passage. Would you help us get a sense of what's going on here and, and get a sense of who we are and how we fit into this story and, and get a sense a very deep sense of our need for Jesus and how the gospel is your power. We ask that you would do these things and whatever else you want to do. We make our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. So here's where we're going today. I'm going to recap the story of Joseph's life, and then we're going to answer two questions. I'm going to ask two questions, and we're going to answer those two questions. Got it? So we're going to look through the story, and then we got two questions. And hopefully, as we look at the story and get those two questions, this idea will be clear. The gospel teaches us how to live when we have been wronged. The gospel teaches us how to live when we have been wronged. Got it? Story, two questions. Gospel teaches us to live when we have been wronged. All right. So God told Abraham to go back last week. God told Abraham he was going to have a son. You remember this? Do we need to go back further? Let's go back a little further. Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything and it was good. Genesis 3 happened and we mucked everything up. Genesis 4 through 11, we see the intensity of our rebellion growing and growing and growing and to the point where we build a great tower because we don't think that we need God at all. And God doesn't respond by enacting justice. He determines to find Abraham and promise Abraham that he would have a son, a nation, 
a land. Remember this? And that from him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Hmm, sound like Genesis 1 and 2? So we stopped with Abraham before he had a son. So let's fast forward. Abraham had a son. His son had a son. And that led to this guy, Jacob, having 12 sons, one of them being named Joseph. So Joseph's story is from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. So let's jump in and understand how we get to this part in Genesis 50. So here's the story of Joseph, just hitting some highlights, but you need to understand who he is and what's going on with him. So we find Joseph in Genesis 37, and he is 17 years old. And he's got a lot of brothers. And guess what? His dad loves him more than his other brothers. And if y'all grow up in a house where you were the favorite, or maybe you weren't the favorite, Joseph was the favorite. And his dad did not mind telling his other brothers that he liked Joseph more than them. So much so that his brothers actually hated Joseph. They hate him. The, the Bible says that in Genesis 37. Joseph got these uh, elaborate clothes that his brothers didn't. So there was all this tension in the family because there was favoritism and bitterness and jealousy. Sound familiar? The Bible stories are real, y'all. Not much has changed in thousands of years. So one day, um, Joseph had this dream. And instead of going to people to say, hey, I had this dream, I'm not sure what it means, Joseph decided that he was going to tell everybody what the dream was and assume that he was the center of that dream. Just so he can rub it in the noses and rub it into the lives of his brothers, look how great I am. This is my dream. I know how to interpret it. Yeah, he was kind of a narcissist. Everything about him. Well, his brothers would go off to take care of, of the farm and take care of the land and take care of the animals. And so one day Joseph went out to find his brothers. And they found out that they were actually in a different location than where they were supposed to be. So Joseph goes out to see his brothers. And as he is coming to, to greet them, his brothers start talking because they see him coming in the distance. And they start thinking to themselves, this is our chance. Remember, they don't like him. Remember, the, 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 the house is a mess. Um, Joseph is the favorite. Dad doesn't care about that at all. Um, and they're like, this is our opportunity to take Joseph out. And if y'all have a brother or sister to try to take you out, you know what I mean, like literally try to kill you. So what they do is they grab Joseph and they throw him down in a pit. And then they take that special coat that dad gave him and they uh, pretty much saturated in animal blood. And in the meantime, Joseph's in the pit. They have taken care of this jacket and they're eating lunch. Oh, uh, yeah. The, his brothers are sitting not far up away from the pit where Joseph is. And I'm sure that Joseph is crying out, hey, help me. What are you doing? And they're just enjoying their lunch. That's some pretty deep hatred, isn't it? That your own brother, your own flesh and blood can be thrown down in a pit and crying out for help. And, and you're just enjoying your sandwich. 
And then they get this idea because one of the brothers is like, yeah, we'll put him here. We won't kill him right away because I'll come back and get him out of the pit. But plot twist, some other people come up and the brothers think we can sell our brother and he'll be gone forever. And then we'll tell dad that he died. So they literally sell their brother into slavery in Egypt. Teenager, sold into slavery. So then they go back to their dad. I can't imagine what this would have been like. Hey dad, do you recognize this coat? That's Joseph's coat. It's, it's stained with blood. Can you imagine observing that if this is your dad and you have devised this plan to take out your brother and you see your dad start uncontrollably weeping and goes into this horrific, horrific amount of sorrow for days and this is your dad and you're just bold-faced lying to him and he is struggling and hurting and you don't care. Joseph goes into slavery in Egypt, and he has ups and downs. He ends up getting thrown in prison one time for something he didn't do, and he gets stuck. Then eventually he gets out of prison, and he ends up holding a position of extreme authority in Egypt. Number two, if I'm not mistaken. And it's at that time that there is a massive famine that actually goes on for seven years. And roughly year two, his brothers, where they're living, which is not Egypt, realize that they've got no food. And they come to Egypt because they know that there's an abundance of food. The Bible even says that the plan that Joseph worked up for the land of Egypt, they had so much food, they stopped calculating it because they had so much. They were so prepared for this family. So his brothers come to Egypt to find food and they don't, when they come to Egypt, they run into Joseph, but they don't recognize it's Joseph, but Joseph knows it's them. And after meeting with them a couple times, you can read about this in chapter 45, Joseph breaks down and he just starts, he leaves, he, he tells people to leave the room and he is uncontrollably weeping. He is weeping so loud that those who left the room can hear him crying and bawling. He is so overwhelmed at seeing his brothers and so thankful to see them that he can't stop weeping. And then in this chapter, chapter 50, his dad dies. We read about that in verses 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 of chapter 50. You remember? Jacob dies. Joseph's dad dies. And what do his brothers think? Uh Uh-oh. So it's almost like they anticipate that Joseph is going to be in a pretty good position to enact revenge. And so it's possible that they concoct this uh, message from dad to Joseph that is like, hey, Joseph, this is dad's dying wish. Don't hurt us. That's Dave's paraphrase. You can imagine what they must be feeling. It's been years and years. They have no food. They're desperate. And here they are, 
They find out their brother is second in command and in charge of a food supply that they need. And then their dad dies. You know that they're thinking to themselves, what in the world is going to happen to us? He's probably going to take us out. And so they plead with them, hey, hey, dad's dying wish. Be nice to us, Joseph. Forgive us. Well, that's the story. That's the background. That's what's happening in these verses. Do you get it? You've grown up in a hard house? Grown up in a difficult family? You ever been the favorite at work? You ever been despised at work because someone liked your coworker better? You've been in those kind of positions before? Let's ask our questions. Here's question number one. How have you been wronged? How have you been wronged? And I want to say from the outset, when I say wronged, I'm not talking about how, you have, been, how have you been hurt. All right? Being hurt is, uh, what I mean by being hurt is um, you, you had a bad week or you learned a typical life lesson. I'm not talking about being hurt. I'm talking about being wronged. I'm talking about someone has taken the universal law of God and they have broken God's law in your life. Someone has lied about you. Someone has intentionally tried to harm you. Someone has even concocted a scheme by which they could say that you were killed. How have you been wronged? And I mean wronged. And I just want you to hear me say, please, listen, please listen to this. If you are going through something right now in which you have been profoundly wronged, the rest of this sermon may not be for you in this moment. If you are going through something that is profoundly difficult and you need space to figure that out, you got it. The rest of this is not me trying to strong arm you. If you've been through something traumatic and you are struggling to know what to do, give yourself space and time. If you need to go see a counselor or need to go get help, go get it. Because what I'm about to say and what this passage teaches us doesn't happen overnight. Joseph was 17 when we met him. He was 30 at least before he became second in command in Egypt. And later than that, in Genesis 50, this is years, more than a decade, perhaps multiple decades, okay? So hear me, please. If you've gone through something horrific, you have space. But do think in the back of your mind, if you need help, get it. Where have you been wronged? Here's the second question. How should we respond how do we respond when we're wronged? Well, the essence, we get two things from this text about how we should respond. Here's the first one. Stay in your lane. How do you respond when you have been wronged? Stay in your lane. Where do you get that? Look at verse 19. What does Joseph say? Am I in the place of God? See that? He's staying in his lane. 
He sees the situation. He's experienced horrific things. And he's staying in his lane. You see, as one man has said, the essence of sin is us trying to substitute ourselves for God. That's the essence of sin. Anytime we try to substitute ourselves, self, for God, that's the essence of sin. This is exactly, if you remember, what the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the garden when he tempted. Oh, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. Exactly. You are going to try to put yourself in a position of being God, which sounds great until you realize it's not. That we aren't God and we can't be. Stay in your lane. How are ways that we try to substitute ourselves for God? I want to give you a couple different ones. Try to dig down into our lives. Here's one way that we try to substitute ourselves for God. We ask other people or things to do what only God can do. In other words, we demand identity and happiness from our work. So here's my job, here's my titles, here are my accomplishments. This defines who I am. This is my identity. And my work should make me happy. We demand identity and happiness from our work. We're looking to something or someone other than God to do what only God can do. Our relationships. Oftentimes, we demand identity from our relationships and we demand something more than happiness, joy. It means that this other person becomes our source of joy. It means that this other person becomes who we are so that we don't think we can exist without them. And when we live that way, guess what? We crush people and are crushed when they put those expectations on us. We demand from our financial positions, we demand from our finances security. We want to make a certain amount of money because that makes us secure. We look to money to bring us security and we oftentimes look to money to solve our problems so that when things go wrong, we just think, well, I can just pay for this or do that and the problem will go away. We are expecting that things or people can do for us what only God can. Your money's going to come and go. It's not really going to solve your problems. As granddaddy says, money won't solve all your problems, but it'll solve your money problems. But you can't have your security and your money. It means that we look to alcohol to wash away the struggles and the hardship. We demand that when we consume, it takes us away from our hard things. The only problem is, it doesn't work, does it? Those things are always right there when we come back. It means that we expect that our skills and our abilities, it means that our giftedness, we expect that those things will get us where we want to go. 
So we demand that our skills and our abilities and our gifting will get us the next level, will get us the job we want, will get us notoriety, will get us achievement, will get us what we want. We're looking to people or things to do for us what only God can do. Do you see how this works? We put ourselves in the place of God. We treat our relationships, our work, our money, our, the things that we might enjoy. We try to get ultimate things from them to satisfy us, to give us security, to give us identity, to bring us happiness, to make us joyful, to wash away our problems, to handle our problems when they can't do it. That's just one example. Here's another one. Our excessive anxieties. Do you realize why we get excessively anxious? Because we think we know, we think that we know how things should go. We get anxious about something because we think God's going to get it wrong. So we get flipped all around and we get upside down and we get worried all the time because we think we know how our lives should go. Friends, most of the time, our excessive anxieties are just us trying to be God, where we think that we know better than him, and then God might miss it. So I need to get really anxious about this because I don't know if he knows what he's doing. And that's harder to say as the challenge or the difficulty or the suffering gets harder, isn't it? And I'll mention this third example just because. If some of you, and I know this doesn't apply to everybody, if the shoe fits, if you're a really competitive person, and I mean competitive, like winning is everything. If you're super competitive inside, you might hide it when you talk to other people, but inside you know that you're really competitive and you know that you feel like you've got the skills to advance where you want to go and your technique motivated and driven and everything for you is centers around mm, this chip on my shoulder and me wanting to do this and wanting to do that. And you look at life and everyone in it as either winning and winners or losing and losers. If that's you, let me tell you something. You're not even in the game. It's why you have this deep sense all the time that you're losing because you're not even playing the game. You think you're in the game and you're not. If you're that competitive and if everyone breaks down to winners and losers to you, why are you continuing to live your life where your working assumption is, I'm always losing something Someone's always trying to take something from me. Do you feel that deep down? Just in case you didn't know, I used to be a really competitive person. God has done a lot in my life. You know what it's like to live in which everything has to be about winning and you winning? Trying to substitute ourselves for God. Well, Stay in your lane. How do we respond? Joseph says, am I in the place of God? In other words, stay in your lane. Here's the second thing we get from the text. Face your 
wrongs. Face them. Face your wrongs. You see, people generally approach life in one of two ways. People generally approach life and think, um, life is uh, horrible, uh, life is terrible, and, um, and that dominates so much of your bandwidth that when something is good, you can't even spend energy on celebrating what's good. Because from your perspective, everything's terrible. So even when good things happen, you struggle to recognize it, say it, and celebrate it because you're so afraid because things are, everything's horrible. It's why you're jaded. It's why you're cynical and skeptical of everything. Here's the other approach. Life's basically good. Things are going to be great. And if that's your working assumption, it's why you struggle to actually deal with hard things in your life. Because you just want to ignore them. You just assume that everything's going to be okay. And when something's really hard, I don't want to deal with that. So I just want to do more fun things. Do more fun stuff. Because life is about fun. But then you end up having this deep sense of emptiness. Because you just struggle to process what your life is, what's actually happening in your life. You see, what God gives us here is something completely different than those two perspectives. What God says here is something completely different, and you can't find it anywhere else. You do realize when Joseph's brothers come to him, what Joseph could have done is this. He could have enacted revenge on them, right? He was second in command. Joseph was in such a position that Pharaoh himself the only thing, the Bible says, the only thing he had to worry about day to day is what he was going to eat. <laughs> that, that's how much authority Joseph had. Pharaoh had delegated everything to Joseph, and the only thing that Pharaoh woke up wondering every day is, well, what am I going to eat today? Joseph could have enacted revenge. Uh, to put this in modern terms, here's something else he could have done. Joseph could have done a, uh, a Netflix documentary where he could have said, look how bad my life is and I'm a survivor. Or he could have done the spiritual version of it in America and it could have been this. Look how terrible my life was. Look how faithful I've been. And because I've been faithful, God gave me this powerful position. Both of those would be profoundly wrong. Because that's not the way God treats us. That's not what the Bible talks about. If we just remain faithful when things get bad, then God is going to do enormous things in our life. Tell that to Jesus. Or Job. It's not what you've experienced, I know. Nor have I. What God says here is this. Look at the text in verse 20. You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Beloved, can you take that in? Remember, we want to operate as if everything's good and ignore things that are bad, or we assume everything's bad and we become cynical and uh, skeptical and we don't even want to recognize when things are good. Joseph says, Here, here's the answer. God says, here it is. Face your wrongs. Here it is. I went through something that was horrifically bad, Joseph says. 
My brothers, my own family meant this for evil. Again, he wasn't saying I had a bad Tuesday or I had a bad month. He says evil was done to me. He identifies and calls it what it is. And then he says, but God meant it for good. Do you see that? Face wrongs. If you've been, if you've been the recipient of something evil, call it. Say it's evil. You have the full authority of God to do so, the freedom to do that. But beloved, you also can recognize by God's grace that he turns those things that are absolutely horrifically evil into something good. And you do realize this takes years, right? Just want to say that again. This takes years to process and work through. But do you realize when Joseph's brothers come to him that Joseph is weeping? He is not, God has been so good to Joseph that revenge doesn't even seem like it is an attractive option. As a matter of fact, listen to these words from chapter 45. Joseph says, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You take that in? Beloved, the most horrific things that you can go through, God can be so present and he can sustain you so much and he can be so active that he can produce something in you through the horrific evil that you have experienced that is beautiful and glorious. There are things that God works into us living in a broken world that we could not see or experience or grow apart from them. That we have to endure the hardships, the evil, the wrongs in order to understand that God's presence and his involvement and the way that he has sustained us throughout that entire period produces something in us that is glorious. When Joseph saw his brothers, he didn't say, look at me, I'm second in command. He worshiped. Joseph did not look at his brothers and say, yeah, guys, uh, but I remain faithful and uh, God gave me this incredible position. He said, no, let me tell you, brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant this for good to preserve thousands of people alive. He wasn't looking to himself. He was looking to God. 
You see, what Joseph is doing is he is living into the four-part story. Joseph recognizes that he's not God. God is God. God's the creator. He's the creature. Joseph is recognizing that sin and rebellion is absolutely real. But in his own life, it doesn't get the last word. Joseph is realizing that God's presence and his involvement and his sustaining power is able to even work all of the trauma that he has been through for good into something beautiful. Joseph, by God's grace, experienced what God is for people like you and me. There's a British scholar that summarized these verses in this way, three things. He says, in this passage, what we see is this, leaving the righting of all wrongs to God, looking for God in wrongs, and responding to wrongs with forgiveness and affection. Joseph doesn't just forgive them, he weeps, he hugs them. You catch those three? Leaving the righting of all wrongs to God, looking for God in the wrong, and responding to the wrong with forgiveness and affection. And beloved, if you hear that as three new things for you to do, You've missed it. Because those three things are showing us the cross. It was on the cross that God righted all of our wrongs in Jesus. It was on the cross that God changed the master plot of hell into redemption. It was on the cross that God comes to us with forgiveness and affection and love. Do you see it? Joseph isn't the one that we're supposed to be like. We are supposed to see Christ. And to the extent that we receive Jesus and step into him and live by him, we will grow along these lines of being able to leave the righting of all wrongs to God, looking for him where we've been wronged, and responding to wrongs with forgiveness and love.